0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Emergency Trauma Mama's podcast. And thank you so much for downloading this episode. And I also just wanted to give a little quick shout out to my listeners as far away as Australia and Canada, uh, neighbors to the north. So thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. And one just quick little thing here, I discovered as I'm listening to some other people's podcasts that I should probably have a medical disclaimer, um, just in order to verify the fact that you should not be using any of this information for clinical disposition or clinical decision making, as I don't guarantee the accuracy or validity. This is just strictly for medical education only. And using or accessing the podcast, otherwise than what it's intended for, is just for teaching moments or teaching cases, Um, I don't guarantee that this is actual advice. So I just wanted to throw that disclaimer out there and that it is not in any way, shape, or form a RN to patient, um, a substitution for RN to patient relationship. And that this is strictly for learning purposes only. So now that that's out of the way... I just wanted to delve into what we're going to be talking about today, which, as I promised on the last podcast, would be trauma. Everybody's favorite, since it is trauma season, and we're seeing quite a few cases. Uh, of course, kids are out playing, and everybody's out doing all kinds of different activities, like jet skiing and boating, and of course, we're seeing you know more drownings and those types of you know, submersion injuries, those are all of concern. But today, we're just going to talk about uh, pedestrian versus auto, pedestrian v. auto or pediatric trauma patients. So the scenario goes a little bit like this. You um, get the report from the ECRN that you're receiving um, a six-year-old child. And unfortunately, she was distracted by a balloon. And it kind of went out into the street it was one of those balloons that was half floating and half sinking and of course you know she was not paying attention to the roadway and unfortunately she was struck by a vehicle and thrown approximately 20 feet and landed on the pavement so they're reporting um via the rig that she has a large lack to her forehead she did have initial loc although it does not say how long and abdominal bruising that they're noticing and distension um so none of those are good When they arrived on scene, she was crying, which is good, Um, so her airway was (laughs) patent, and she was asking, well, what happened? You know, that type of thing, repetitive questioning, and complaining, of course, about her head hurting, so her GCS at that point in time is 14. Um, Vital signs are as follows, uh, heart rate 132, BP 82 over 40, uh, respirs 32, and cap refills about three and a half seconds. So, moving on through the case, the, the EMS, of course, they put her a C collar and long spine board, and they go ahead and initiate a large bore IV and start crystalloids. So, those are running, and the 12 centimeter lac- laceration on her scalp is actively bleeding. Um, now, her GCS is 15, but she still seems a little confused. I'm not sure how that works, but I guess I'm going to go with the repetitive questioning based on the case study. Uh, however, you, her, her pupils are reported as pearl, uh, 4 to 5, so that's okay. Um, her heart rate's now 122. Um, BP's 84 over 40. respirs 30. Cap refills 3 seconds. Chest is clear to auscultation, and her abdomen is still tender, um, distended, and now firm. So, of course, what are we going to do? Stop the bleed, right? Because C comes before A and B um, in the event that there's uncontrolled external hemorrhage, which in this case, we know that head wounds can bleed like nobody's business. So we definitely want to stop the bleed. So um, direct pressure to that um, actively bleeding head lack is a very high importance, if not the important, of course, because we know that her airways patent and she's breathing okay. But even if she were not, let's refer back to our rules of trauma. We know that C is going to trump A or B, right? Because if they're bleeding to death, we've got to stop the bleed. So it's not an extremity where we're going to throw a TQ or a tourniquet on. However, we do need to stop that actively bleeding head wound right because they can lose a lot through that um, head wound and of course if there's a little spurter in there you know she's got a little arterial bleed pumping that's another um, even easier way for her to lose quite a bit of blood so and it doesn't say the response time for ETA excuse me for the medics to get on scene so we don't know that information but just keeping that in mind as well. So labs are, you're going to order your type and cross, all your trauma labs. She's rolling into your trauma recess room now. So the, the medics were able to just put a combat gauze and stop that bleed, which is good. Um, she does need a second large bore. Um, and then, of course, we're going to anticipate a couple plane films, a fast, and of course, a CT, right? Because what's one of the things that we think about with kids when they're hit by a vehicle, and i it doesn't to me it doesn't really matter if it's a it's a car or a suv or a truck um just thinking sheerly pediatric anatomical knowledge and what you know um if you haven't heard of it already it's called waddell's triad or waddell's triad of trauma and so it's one of those things that you know their their head is so big and they kind of get thrown up on the vehicle and they sustain certain injuries. So the the triad consists of three different types of injuries. So, of course, it has to do with the fact that they get hit. And then, they, you know, it kind of comes in right at their, almost in their femur. Um, and then, of course, they get thrown up. And so then they get their belly, right? So they've got abdominal or intrathoracic injuries. And then, because their head's so big, they that kind of gets thrown over... The you know front of the vehicle, whether it's a car or SUV, um, that their head goes forward, right? So then it's 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 kind of striking, the trunk or the or the hood, excuse me. Um, so then they get their head right, and so then there's all the assault on that, and then of course they go backwards once they get hit, they're thrown. Remember this? This girl was thrown what twenty feet? So then they land. In addition to the fact that they probably have, you know, could have potentially bilat, femur fracture, um, pelvis fracture, liver fracture, or liver, you know, splenic fracture, splenic fracture, um, hepatic injuries, um, all kinds of stuff in there. And then in addition to that, head. So epidural, subdural, um, all kinds of head bleeds. So that's what's known as Waddell's triad. Um triad of trauma, if you will. So what else? And it doesn't happen with every patient every time. However, clearly the high index of suspicion is there, right, for that mechanism of injury alone. So that's the clinical significance. So when you hear uh, kid versus car um, or pedestrian v. auto, and it's a pediatric trauma patient, Just be thinking about that mechanism of injury and how they get thrown up on the hood and then they get thrown back and then when they land, there's another opportunity for assault to the body, which we know energy has to go somewhere, right? So when they land, then that in and of themselves, how they land is another uh, reason for concern. So, of course, neck, uh, spinal cord injuries, of course, they have what we know as Skiwara, so their spinal cord injuries without evidence of radiographic abnormalities. So, again, there's all these different things that we think about with kids that are very different than our adult trauma patients. So, they may not clearly have any kind of crazy thing. C1, C2 might look okay, but then you get, you know, you get the CT or um, you get an MRI and you're like, oh man, there's a lot of um, injury there or a chance fracture too. They could have a lot of LS or lumbar spinal um, injury as well. So, um, and that's and more when they're buckled in the back, but they can still have it. And that, So then of course, when you see a chance fracture, you know, your LS, um, lumbar spinal fracture, chance fracture, you want to think about mesenteric or bowel injury as well, just based on the seat belt and where it lies. But this is a pedestrian V auto, so we want to think about what else triad of trauma. So if you see one of these injuries, again be thinking, okay, I see one. I see, you know, maybe a femur fracture. Um I should be thinking about the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and head. So just be thinking that when you start to see these types of patients. So of course um CT, C1, C2, Without contrast, um, we're going to get a fast just real quick at the bedside. Um, and then, of course, the CT of the abdomen pelvis with con if the patient is stable. And lo and behold, the kid is stable enough to go. Um, and we see a sub small subdural noted in the CT of the head. We go on down because, of course, the fast was positive. But again, we never send anybody to CT unless they're hemodynamically stable. So we were able to stabilize um, this patient's blood pressure was not um, tanking too bad. And so then we were able to see, okay, we know we got a positive fast. Remember the abdomen, clinically just speaking, it was soft, distended, getting more firm to the touch as the the progression of the patient was going on. And so CT of the abdomen pelvis so, shows a grade four liver lac, um, grade three right renal lac, right adrenal hematoma, and a grade one splenic lac, and perforated small bowel. So again, all of those things feed right into what we kind of considered when we we're talking about mechanism of injury with this pediatric trauma patient. So um Obviously, with the hepatic lacs, they're actively bleeding, and then you've got free air, and what do you think about the renal lac? That's actively bleeding, right? Because we know that our kidneys are highly vascular, and as is the liver, but these things are bleeding, so the patient's got to go to the OR, right? Because OR is the definitive care for trauma patients, whether they're pediatric, geriatric, or adult, Um, OR is the definitive Area of care. They shouldn't be hanging around the ED or recess room for a prolonged period of time, anyway. So they need to go where they need to go, and that's where the trauma surgeon is the one that's gonna fix them. We're not gonna fix them in the ED recess room. We're just gonna do the things that we need to do to delineate what what the injuries are, and then they're gonna go to the OR. So I can't stand it when patients hang around for longer than they need to. It just drives me crazy. Um, So for the definitive care, of course, they also found a ruptured viscous when they opened up the patient. And there, of course, this patient's going to go to the PICU. And now just to bring this in, this actually is something that was not necessarily in this scenario, but I just wanted to bring it up to kind of plant it in your brain for wherever you're practicing. So I'm working in a level one trauma center, and so, of course, we have MTP, and we've got the the blood right in the trauma room, so we do have that luxury. But I also want to kind of plant it in your brain, even if you're working in maybe a level two or a level three, where you don't have the ability to get that blood quickly, you need to be thinking about it from the minute this patient hits the door, from the minute that that positive fast comes back. Because we know, as as nurses, we know we've seen a lot of trauma. A positive fast obviously means they're bleeding somewhere in their belly. And we know, depend it doesn't really depend on what it is. We know we're gonna have to replace that volume, right? Or this patient's gonna disintegrate into hypovolemic shock very quickly, right? Because re- remember... You know, kids are not little adults. Their volume's different. How they compensate is different. And I want to bring your attention to the fact that this patient was telling you something very important. Not just that she's scared. Not just that she's in pain. Not just that she's crying. But that heart rate. When she first got picked up was 132. And 132. And, of course, the blood pressure's you know, okay, but not that great, so tachypneic and, and cap refills three and a half seconds. So when we talk about central and peripheral pulses, I really want you to hone in on that, on these patients. Yes, her heart rate came down to 122 later in the scenario. Okay, fine. And her respirs came down from 32 to 30. Okay, but her cap refill is still three seconds And remember that if you're not checking the central and peripheral pulses and you're not delineating that there's a gap early on, that's not going to lead you down the correct decision making tree to pull the trigger on MTP or getting volume in this patient. This patient has a significant amount of injury and a significant amount of bleeding. She's not going to tolerate that very long. Look, she's bleeding from her liver. She's bleeding from her um, she's bleeding from her renal laceration. She's she's got a bruise to her adrenals. She's bleeding from her spleen. Um, her small bowel is perfed. She's got a perfiscus. This patient is so ill. And so again, pay attention to those those vital signs. It's very basic. Sometimes we forget because we have a lot of tools in our toolbox, right? We've got this machine and that machine and you know, all this technology, but it really goes back to the nurse just using all five of her senses and looking at the patient. And I always like to check their cap refill on the bottom of their foot um, because that's the most distal, number one, is the most distal part of their body. So if they're shunting and there is a deficit between their central and peripheral pulses, then I pick that up because I do listen apically. Um, And then I'll just stick my hand down, you know, by the radial I'll do a radial and I'll listen at the same time. And that's how I pick up if there's uh, a difference between central and peripheral pulses. But I also, especially babies, I like to just stick my thumb on the bottom of their heel and see what that cap refill is. And I guarantee you it's probably greater than three and a half. And there's probably... A difference between the central and peripheral pulses so again whatever you're doing in your hospital um, there's a lot out for TQIP or for the ACS for American College of Surgeons for what what they look at for trauma quality improvement program and MTP and if you click on it it just says MTP and it doesn't speak directly to pediatric population which is interesting However, if you dig a little deeper into the EBP, you'll see that the MTP is is still really poorly defined. Um, the registry exists, but it's not a huge amount of patients. And a lot of them were um, combat injured pediatric patients. So what we're starting with usually is like 40 mls per kilo of all blood pro- blood products. And then we're kind of just going from there. And so if you have that and you're starting that, that's good. Again, if you have TEG or Rotem, um, to guide you, that's preferred. Um, so that's going to help guide you in having a balanced resuscitation. So, um, obviously this kid went to the OR and got fixed up and went to the PICU. So it was about, um, Sixty minutes, actually, from door to pick you, which is pretty good after the OR. H and H was eight and 22. Um, they did end up infusing, of course, started with the MTP, closed the scalp lock, um, did some serial abdominal exams after the surgical repair. Um, and actually the kid ended up having a pretty good outcome because the kid was lucky, and they were in a level one trauma center. However, even if you're the stabilizing Say you're a level three and you don't have a pediatric trauma surgeon. Well, you can still stabilize and transport this kid and the kid's still going to have a good outcome because most places, even if you're a level three, can still call and activate that MTP. And I would do that before they get on the helo and and get transferred because volume is what this kid needs, right? Um, they're not going to get fixed up right this minute in the OR, but... um. You know, you can do a lot of, well, basically damage control um, before they get to the facility that they're going to be in to go to the you in the OR and that type of thing. So anyway, that's pretty much the gist of this case. But just to think about, again, what Waddell's triad of trauma. Um, they do, kids can go under vehicles, again, a slower moving vehicle, they can go under it. So then they can get crushed in addition to everything else. Um, Once they get hit, sometimes they get crushed and then sometimes they get run over. So then that's multiple assaults to their poor body. Um, Again, when a child under eight goes airborne, they pretty much typically land on their head, right? Because their head is the biggest part of their body. Um, Not just toddlers, but again, Thinking about the mechanism of injury um, with these types of pediatric trauma patients is key. Thinking about hypovolemic shock with these kids. Thinking about the difference in how they present. Remember, children will just compensate, compensate, compensate until they crash. So they'll be tacky. They'll have a difference in the central and peripheral pulses. They'll have a delayed cap refill. All of those are signs to you as the trauma nurse that you need to be thinking, how am I going to replace volume on this patient? We know they're bleeding from somewhere, whether you're going to stabilize and transport or they're going to go actually into your OR um, and be fixed up. Regardless, you need to be thinking MTP. And then just, again, using your Teg or Rotem to have a balanced resuscitation um. To have a balanced resuscitation for the patient. So that's pretty much the gist of that case. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope.